Good morning, everyone. I'm glad to see you all this morning. I'm actually on time, so I figured we'd go ahead and start. Um, and actually, this week, we are on chapter three, and we are going to have a bit more time at the end than we typically do, because this chapter, if you've read ahead, you know, this chapter, although it's a good one, is also a short one. And so we'll do, it's really only about two sections, and once we are finished, we're going to have some time at the end for some kind of more substantive Q&A. And so I'm telling you that now, because I learned a long time ago that most people can't formulate questions on the fly. And so as we go through, if there's something that you've been wondering over these last few weeks, um, I have one, really one good, I don't wanna say good, one question from last week that we will start the Q&A with at the end. Uh, but otherwise, just be thinking. Make a note to yourself. Um, maybe tell your extroverted friend next to you to ask in your place um, or whatever you want. And we'll have, we'll have some good Q&A at the end of this session. So let's start with a, well, yeah, let's start with a prayer and then I've got a few little housekeeping notes. So the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, as we continue our study of Acts, we ask that you help us be present, present for this next hour, available to your spirit, seeking and searching in our own lives for your still small voice as it calls out to us and for your sacred nudges that move us in the direction that you created us to go. May we be blessed here and be a blessing to those we meet as we leave this place, as we continue to inspire those here at St. Michael and beyond to extend your kingdom on earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a couple housekeeping things. First off, I just handed out a lot of bookmarks, which means you haven't picked them up. And so there are stacks of these at both doors um, as you leave today. And so if you are coming to this study regularly or if you are here when you can be and might listen online, then please grab one of these. It tells you when we will and will not meet and what chapters we're doing on those dates. It's handy too for your Bibles that you carry around all the time now. I had someone say to me last week, I'm bringing my Bible with me twice a week now, like Wednesdays and Sundays. It's so great. So I'm glad. These are available at all the doors, so grab one as you go out. Also, another just quick reminder that the comment cards, the communication, what do we call them? Communication cards. The communication cards that are in the pews are great ways to let us know if you've got some questions, especially if it's a question you don't feel comfortable asking. Um, you can do it anonymously. This is a question from last week, which is obviously anonymous. I don't know who it was. Um, and so that means I can't judge you, right? So that's good. Um, so these are great comment cards for questions. It's also great to let us know if you've got prayer requests because this is a larger group than small. And so we can't really know each other and what we're going through necessarily, which is the benefit of a smaller group of say six to 10 people, but we can still say prayers for one another. So as you have prayer requests, please let us know and we'll say those prayers out loud uh, when we do Bible studies each week, and that will at least help us remain connected to one another a bit more than we can as we're just sitting here in this didactic experience. 
So send us prayer requests or questions on these cards. A reminder, chapters 1 and 2. We started with Jesus's appearance as a resurrection, after his resurrection, I mean. He spoke to the apostles. He ascended into heaven. The apostles received the Holy Spirit, and they were sent out of the room that they were in to begin telling the story of Jesus. And that's where we ended with chapter 2. Chapter 3 begins a bit more of the normal experience of these early Christians. It's still not technically normal, but it's more normal. So today for chapter 3, as I noted, it's a somewhat shorter chapter, and so we really only do have two sections to deal with here. The first one is that Peter heals a lame man, and the second one is, again, Peter, and it's Peter's teaching right outside the temple. I think I noted on the first week, but it's good to repeat it, Acts is structured in two big chunks. The first chunk is really centered and focused on Jerusalem and Israel and Peter's leadership. The second chunk, which is really about 50-50, half and half, the second half of Acts is focused on Paul's leadership and how it spreads beyond Israel, ultimately ending in Rome. And so if you think of Acts as being the bridge to the modern church, goes from being a group of good Jewish people who figured out that Jesus was doing something new within their context and expands to something that is understood as being for every person, that you don't have to be Jewish in order to have faith in and follow and reflect Jesus's life and ministry. So we are still in that Peter period, that first half of Acts. And so as chapter 3 shows us, it's the Peter show. So we begin with Peter and John going toward the temple. Geographically speaking, the city of Jerusalem looks somewhat like a square. If you've never been to Jerusalem, I highly recommend it. And the old city of Jerusalem is, in essence, one big square. The walls around the city, as they exist today, are slightly different than what they would have been in the first century because they were expanded a bit um, when there was a, a kind of a few centuries of Muslim rule over Jerusalem. But in essence, the walls form about a square. The Temple Mount is on the east side of the city. We're going to say Big T Temple. This feels like it's going to fall off the stage, but it's all right. The temple is on the east side of the city, slightly northeast in the city, because that's the highest spot. Jerusalem was built on the highest of a few hills in this region, so it's relatively defensible, right? What people would have to do to get into Jerusalem is, in essence, go down into a valley and then up a hill into the city. Not only is that good for defense, because that means anyone trying to sack the city is going to have to come at the city from a lower position, which is not good, but it's also allowed the city to be relatively clean, because at this point in time, trash and other things goes downhill. And so it kind of 
rolls out of the city, in essence. And each, in the city, on those exterior walls, there are lots of gates. And so you've got, you know, there's a gate right here, there's a gate here, a gate here, 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 here. And so all these different gates are roads that go in different directions to other places around Israel. So depending on the gate you enter is really dependent upon where you're coming from because you take the road that goes to Jerusalem. When Peter and John are going to the temple, they are coming from somewhere in the city. Scholars think that the room they would have been in is kind of on the west side of Jerusalem, but that's conjecture mostly, or tradition. We, I won't say conjecture, I'll say tradition. So they're coming to the temple from the west side of the city, and the temple, as I noted, is elevated. And so as they, even from within the city, they're still having to, in essence, go uphill to get to the temple. On their way, they will pass multiple little doorways. The streets in Jerusalem are super skinny. And so many of them have archways that support the buildings above the street. And so they'd have to pass through multiple archways. And that's when they encounter a lame beggar. So at the beginning of chapter 3, as Peter and John are walking toward the temple to get into the temple, they see a lame beggar man. One of the things that I want to note is that people who beg for alms would have not done so infrequently. They would have been there every day. And as we note in this passage, it says... If we look at the beginning of chapter 3, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, three o'clock in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple, called the beautiful gate, so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. We know a few things from that passage. The first is, this man was a regular he would have been known. And that's very important to understand the magnitude of the healing moment. This isn't a guy, how many of you ever watched, I, I honestly never watched them myself, but I think back in, sorry, this is going to sound so dumb, maybe like the 70s or so when people would heal people on TV, right? I mean, the ecstatic kind of preachers healing people, like 70s, 80s-ish, something like that. Um, you would see somebody come up with crutches and then like they would be healed and then they would drop their crutches and everyone would cheer and weep and it was great. Part of that, part of the problem with that is if you needed to believe in the healing, you could. But if you were at all looking to be skeptical, you don't know that person. Are you sure they needed the crutches? Are you sure they needed that wheelchair? You you know, you don't want to say that they're duping you on TV, except we kind of know they probably were. But that is not the case here. And we have to shift that context. This lame man at the gate was known. And he may have been known for decades, right? So this is not a one-off. He is not a stranger. He's got people who bring him there in the morning and take him away in the evening so he can beg at the beautiful gate so that people who are going up to pray at the temple 
would be most generous, right? It's a whole lot easier to ignore someone on the street outside of Starbucks or in the Walmart parking lot than it is if they're sitting on the steps of the church, right? Because we're the same people and should feel the same way about our life, but man, we feel more guilty when we're going to church than when we're doing other things. So this was a smart, lame beggar. <laughs> he put himself in the right place to get the most amount of money he could. So Peter and John are going up there, and this man says to them just what he would have said to anyone else. Right, would you please, do you have any money to spare? Peter looks at the man intently. That's what Luke writes. He looks at the man intently, and then he says to this beggar man, look at me. This is an interesting moment because he wants this man's attention. Look me in the eye. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And takes the man's hand, stands him up, and Scripture says his ankles became strong again, and everyone rejoiced. This is one of those moments where there's a pivot in the work being done. A healing is not completely unique. That's been done. We heard those stories in the Gospels. Jesus was rubbing mud on people's eyes and telling them to get up and take their mat. And so this has been happening. What Peter does here that's a little different is he says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. That is a subtle but important shift. Peter is now claiming faith in the name of Christ. And that begins to impact all the other people who hear Peter's story. And we will see that in the rest of chapter 3 as he explains what it is that he did. So imagine the scene one more time. This known beggar gets up and walks. So we can assume that the people actually believed this man was lame, right? This wasn't a stunt actor walking up on stage on TV with some crutches. People would have known him well enough to know that his in infirmity was real. And there he is walking away. That garnered a lot of attention. People start running up to Peter and John to say, what just happened? And Peter seizes the opportunity to begin to tell them the story of Jesus. Any questions before we shift to what Peter says? Amy? So in this moment, this is the first healing we have recorded that Peter did. And so it's an interesting note. If this was the first one, Peter is quite confident, isn't he? So I mean, he's just like walking around, and then there's a lame guy, and he's like, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk, right? And if that didn't work, that might have been a problem, right? I mean, that's—it worked, so good for him, but if that hadn't worked, people would have heard him or seen him do it, and then you're talking about perhaps undermining their, mes their message, right? Because if— Peter couldn't heal in the name of Jesus. 
names matter, right? We know what it means to use someone's name, right? How many of us were told when we were younger, it's not what you know, it's who you know? That's true our whole life, right? You got to know somebody to get into that party. You got to know somebody to perhaps talk to the person you need to interview for a job. You've got to know somebody to, you know, we, we always use names. We name drop some of us better than others, some of us more subtle than others, but we all do that in connection to try and make something happen. So the idea that you might claim someone's name in order to make something happen is not new to us, but we do it in a way that we know should work. So if you're asking the question, is this Peter's first healing? It is his first in the scriptural story, but man, he is bold if it's actually his first. So could we assume that might, maybe he's already done this? Or maybe somebody's done this? Maybe. What we will see in Acts as we go on <clears throat> is that Peter does this a few times. And Peter's really the one that does this. We don't really see the other apostles doing much of this. There are a few exceptions that we will see. But Peter's the one that most often claims Jesus' power for healing and executes those healing moments. And so this is the first recorded. Is it the very, very first? Uh, we don't know. It's the first one Luke tells us, because I think it's the first one that has the real power moment. Peter does this in public, and that matters. Any other questions or wonderings? So as people run up to Peter, they are asking, how'd you do that? Peter takes the opportunity, just as he had done after the Pentecost moment, to begin to explain Jesus in context. Before we get into what Peter says, it's important for us to note that the Jewish context of the Messiah is not new. I mean, I hope that in our just general Christian lives at church, we get that the Messiah, the idea of the Messiah, was something that the Jews were waiting for. So as the Gospels are told and as the Apostles tell others about Jesus, they're constantly hearkening back to words of the prophets that predicted the Messiah. And one of the most critical passages for the early church in understanding Jesus' meaning and impact comes from Isaiah 53. And so I'll just read you a little portion of it at the very beginning. Don't worry about turning to it. You will recognize this. Isaiah 53 begins, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by all, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53, among others, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 43, and, and more, 
give the early followers of Jesus some kind of parameter and context to understand what happened. Why that's important for us to note is because the apostles and the other disciples at that time went through a very similar shift in their understanding of Messiah that the rest of the populace would begin to go through. That is, they wanted the Messiah to look like King David. They wanted a powerful preacher and prophet, a powerful king and military leader. They wanted to overthrow the Romans. And yet Jesus, claiming the authority of Messiah, didn't do any of that stuff. Yet his power was even bigger. How is it that Jesus' messiahship makes sense? They started to go back and look at what some of the prophets said. And when it says, when prophets like Isaiah say he was pierced for our transgressions, by his wounds we were healed, that begins to help them understand what Jesus was perhaps really trying to do, what God was really trying to do. And because they would have grown up with those words, it was not a hard shift for them to make. But Peter knows where the other Jews around the temple are, what they might be expecting, and why Jesus does not perhaps synchronize with their expectations. So in these moments, and this will not be the last one, Peter seizes on the opportunity to point out how the prophets had been pointing to Jesus the whole time, and yet their expectations of the Messiah were not accurate. It was their mistake. The Jews were simply not looking for the right kind of person. But it was not the prophet's fault. The prophets had been saying the right stuff from the beginning. And now we understand the connection to Jesus because of his own ministry. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So Peter begins to describe who Jesus is, just like he did in chapter 2 and like he will beyond. Peter sees the, uh, walks through salvation history. I think it's important to note, and I did this, um, I tried to explain this on Sunday in Sunday school, and multiple people either sent me emails or something to tell me that it, it made good sense to them. So I, I'm going to repeat it here. When God chooses the Israelites in our story, when God chooses the Israelites, we, we talk about chosen people. God was not saying the Israelites were better. God was not doing anything that marked them as better. What was happening, and we see that now after Jesus, is that God was looking to bless and save the entire world through the Israelites. That was not quite understood. And so what the Jewish people did is they began to live into their chosenness as something that separated them from everyone else, rather than seeing their chosenness as a responsibility to include everyone else. And, oh my gosh, is that not so human? I mean, that is perfectly human that they heard chosen, and it didn't translate as responsible, it translated as special. We would do the same thing. We all do the same thing, right? In fact, 
almost every church anywhere, the number one reason, uh, the number one hardest hurdle for a church to get over is that the real purpose of our church is to go out there and get other people who aren't a part of the church. Because most of us tend to make our priority the people who are already in the church. And out of such good reasons, because we get to know each other and we love each other and when bad things happen or we need help or support, we wanna be there right there for those people that we actually know. And prioritizing the people we don't know just doesn't make any sense, except it is absolutely biblical that we would prioritize the people we don't know. It's just, we're human. And so just like we see the Jewish identity going through a massive shift in this moment, we also have our own shift we can go through. So it's not just them back then. We have the same kind of problem. It's just done differently. Okay, so Peter says, you've known that Jesus was coming for a long time, and I'm going to prove it to you. Peter describes Jesus as a servant, the holy and righteous one, and the author of life. So I'm going to unpack those things for us. First, what does Jesus, what does Peter mean by calling Jesus a servant? The word servant in the Old Testament is used many times and is the same word used here in Acts to define a person that goes on an errand. So there are different ways of using that word. So servant could mean someone that is physically next to you doing stuff for you. That is not what this word means. This means the person that you task with going to do something. We've seen this multiple times in the Old Testament. One example would be when Abraham sends his servant ahead of him into Canaan. It's not just any person. It might be a person who works for you or who answers to you in some way, but it's also a person that you can trust to leave for days, weeks, months at a time to accomplish a task. Peter is now describing Jesus as God's servant having come from God to accomplish a task. That is a critical understanding of what Messiah is. As you know, we will get to a point when we understand Jesus as fully God and fully human, as God's Son, but also God, and we cannot figure out how to make that work except to say that God is three in one. Okay, that doesn't make any sense, which is why you always task a lower junior clergy person to preach on Trinity Sunday. Because <laughs> it is not, it makes no sense, no matter what metaphor you use or image you use, right? I mean, how many times have you heard, you know, God's sort of like water, you know, it can be solid or gas or liquid, right? But it's all still water. That's dumb. I mean, good try. But that's not, no matter what image you use, it always falls short. And ultimately, you just have to say, we don't know. But we've, 
been told all these things, and we believe all these different things are true, and the only way we can say they're true is by saying God is three in one. It did not, they did not get to that Trinitarian identity fast. It took hundreds of years for them to actually finally say, this is the way it is. We don't know. It, it just, it is. Part of that journey is understanding that Jesus came from God and returned to God and was God incarnate on earth. And we see that indicated here with the description of Jesus as a servant, a trusted task errand person on God's behalf. To what? Well, to come and save us. And we get that next. Jesus is the holy and righteous one. This explicitly references two important passages, both in Exodus and in Isaiah, where Moses understands the future purpose of Israel as a holy and righteous nation and predicts that God will send a prophet in the future who will lead the Israelites to become the people that they are meant to be. Certainly at that point in time with Moses, the idea of Messiah was not yet developed. But fast forward into the kingdom period, and especially in the prophet period, Moses was establishing a people. That people went and did a lot of, I mean, it, violent stuff, but they, they were the winners, and they won for a long time. They created a kingdom of winners, but then they lost, and they were taken into exile. And it's in that exilic experience that the prophets begin to say, you misunderstood who you were, who you were meant to be, and what actually winning looks like. You were human, we get it, but God wanted so much more for you. And we've got Moses' prediction of someone to lead the people in the future, marrying itself with the prophetic tradition explicitly in Isaiah to create what would become a solid messianic expectation. And that's what Peter's building on here. The key is that all the people who would have gone for daily prayer in the temple would all be church nerds. They would know this stuff. And so Peter's not speaking over the people who would have been there in the afternoon in the temple to say their prayers. All right, these are not people who do not know scripture. They're the ones who know. And his allusions to particular language would not have missed the mark. Finally, Peter says Jesus is the author of life. As the author of life, Peter is creating a connection to God as the creator. If Peter is explaining Jesus as not only a servant of God, God incarnate, but also the author of life, who's the author of life? God. God created everything. He is author. And so if Jesus is also author, then it further complicates Jesus' identity. And yet it's still true. 
And if you wrap all that stuff up together, you can see the, the seeds of what will ultimately become kind of the basic Orthodox Christian identity. Jesus is God incarnate. God is three in one. I mean, that's, that's kind of necessary, right? There are lots of details about Christianity that you can tweak, but those are some of the just kind of deal-breaker fundamentals. You got to just understand at least that stuff, and Peter's setting that up right now. If you look at verse 21, Peter continues his story, so chapter 3, verse 21, As Peter is explaining why Jesus will remain in heaven, Peter says that God will restore all things in time. What's important for us to note is that the apostles, disciples, those who began to tell the story, understood this moment in time as an opportunity for restoration. God was on a rescue mission. Jesus was the, uh, what would be the right word? The herald, of, the herald of the rescue moment. Jesus came to get everyone's attention, but not to just finish the job. Jesus left, and as we saw in chapter 1 of Acts, Jesus said, now it's up to you you are now responsible to, in essence, go save everybody. And so Peter is trying to tell the story to these Jewish people, listening to him now, that we've got a moment and an opportunity. God will shut this down at some point. But the door is open. Jesus is that doorway. And so come on in, right? God wants you in. God is trying to get your attention so that you can turn, right? You can repent and return to God in the right way. Nothing's really changed. That's really probably the most important thing that we keep in our minds is that God's done something new but not different. God's been doing this, right? God's been trying to get our attention and get us to be this kind of people, but Jesus is just the biggest way God did that. And so, come on in. He's opened this door. He has healed you by taking on all of your sinfulness and your brokenness and wants you to come on in to that healing, to really, really be with God in total. We look at chapter, I'm sorry, verse 19. I'm going to read just a few portions of this to the very end. Peter says, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise for you from your own people a prophet like me and all the prophets as many as have spoken from Samuel and those after him also predicted these days. You are the descendants of the prophets and of the covenant that God gave to your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and in your descendants all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
If you take verses 19 to 25, you see the full summary of everything Peter thinks and is trying to communicate to the other Jews. There is repentance that God is calling you in order to clean everything about you, that everything will be wiped away, and that God has been doing this from the beginning. Beginning with Abraham, God called Abraham's descendants to a task to help bless the entire world. That was renewed with Moses. That was renewed with the prophets, including Samuel, and now is fulfilled in Jesus. Boom, 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 boom. He connected all those dots in a super succinct way so the Jews can understand what the apostles like Peter have found in Jesus and invite them in. Now, Peter is doing some good stuff. He's calling attention to himself by doing things like public healings. This will ultimately not turn out well. We know that Jesus was doing something similar that got him killed. Peter, John, and the others are going to, in a very similar way, become targets because they draw too much attention to themselves. They threaten the hierarchy, right? There are people who have authority and power because of the religious structure. If they begin to undermine that structure, the first thing most people do is defend their power. I know we don't know anything about that in church. But that is the real root of the problem that they will come up against, which is perhaps, and maybe it was always intended to be this way, but when the message pushes out of Israel, one of the explicit reasons is because the Jews are resistant. So in essence, the followers of Jesus take on the mantle and the responsibility that God gave way back at Sinai to the Israelites to be the people that bring about God's salvation. And instead, they form something new. It's not just Jews, but it's Jews and Gentiles together taking on that new mantle and responsibility. That's the end of chapter 3. Like I said, it's relatively short, relatively simple in its ideas. And so what I'd love to do is start with this question, because it really does get to Peter's message here, and then take more from you if you've got them. So a person asked, last week, she wrote, last year, I referenced a book called If Grace is True. This book was written by two Quaker leaders. I don't know. Do Quakers call themselves pastors? I don't think so. I think they're two Quaker leaders, friends, that wrote a book out of their own experience that in essence said, we talk a lot about grace, and if grace is true, then God's going to save everybody because that is the heart of God. What's interesting about that book, so I read that book, oh, I don't know, maybe in 2000, something like that. And at that point in my life, I was in college, and that sounded great. Because I saw most 
most faith groups as judgmental, fundamentally judgmental. Like maybe they meant well, but the product was not genuine and kind and inclusive and loving and all that other stuff. It was basically judgmental. And so I read this and I thought, you know what? I love that. God is good and grace is true. And yes, that makes sense to me. Then when I was in grad school, some maybe eight years later, I was a TA for a systematic theology class and was tasked by the professor to debate on behalf of the pop atheists. So I was in essence Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and people like that. I had to read all of their stuff in order to be able to get up with the professor and debate for atheism. And part of that, because his, his opinion, and I think he's right, if you can't actually articulate someone's argument, you don't really understand what they're saying. And so part of being a good, you all, many of you likely know uh, apologists in the Christian tradition like a C.S. Lewis, right? C.S. Lewis was brilliant at understanding the other position such that he could write in a way that really convinced the other people. In order to do that, you have to know how to argue their side. They're not dumb. They might be wrong, but they're not dumb. And so preparing all of that and having to go in and do this debate actually shifted my opinion. So the question really is, if grace is true and God saves everybody, why would we do any of this? Right? Because it's kind of a decent amount of work, right? I, mean, I don't know about you, but Christianity is not, is, is often work because it calls me to be much better than I would be otherwise, right? It'd be so much easier to not be nice. So I think, I think that what I have, what I would tell you that I think now is that grace is true. God wants to save every person. But nothing can take away our choice. If we don't have genuine, real choice, then love is not real. And I think that's the core of Jesus is love. Loving God, loving our neighbor, loving ourselves. Love, real love, is not ever forced. It's honestly and genuinely reciprocated. When we experience God's real love for us, I think that we are almost certainly compelled to respond with love in return. But we still can choose not to. I think we have to be able to choose not to. And I would go so far as to say, maybe in the end, no one will say no, but I think we have to be able to say no, or else everything falls apart because love is no longer real. So that's my quick answer to that. So, any questions either about that or something else? Okay, so let me try and unpack. You have a few things going on there. The first is... Peter is harsh 
to the Jews. That is not uncommon. We see that uh, it's hard to read any of the Gospels without there being a little bit of, of harshness to the Jews. If for no other reason, then that's the context we're in, right? Jesus is Jewish, and his followers were Jewish. And as he speaks to his purpose, he's speaking into a Jewish context. Those outside the Jewish tradition did not have a messianic expectation. That is Jewish. And so in one way, it's all Jewish. And so if you're trying to make a point about something that is different than someone would expect, then you naturally have to, in essence, say what you thought you believed was wrong. Whether you say it explicitly or not, that's in essence what you're, what you're doing. Peter takes it another step further. I think because it creates in his listeners the need for repentance and returning. Jesus was a good guy, killed badly. If he can get everyone to see that, then it naturally creates a guilt or shame reaction in the people for not doing something better. And that does call people to task. I think it's easier if you feel, I mean, let's, let's, if you feel scared, shamed, guilted, it's easier to then feel like you need to change. The church has done this effectively for a long time, right? Like I joked about last week, part of the brilliance of many evangelists over the years has been teeing people up to understand that they are weak, slovenly, broken, and every other way bad, and then giving them the key to being good. And if you can elicit a deep enough and a passionate enough emotional response, then people are desperate for whatever solution you have. Not in theory wrong, but it is, it's, it's very manipulative. And some people, I think, would say, well, it's manipulative for a very good reason. And so, whatever, right? Manipulate away, because the result is worth it. I don't know that Episcopalians tend to land on that. And so, for us, I think it is mostly that most of us would likely see that Peter is being a bit harsh. For me, Preaching is always a fine line because it's easy to very quickly become anti-Semitic. And we shouldn't be. But we also shouldn't shy away from what is, at its core, a new way of understanding the Jewish identity of Messiah. It just, it just is. And so, at least in some way, we are saying that the Jews missed this, and we figured it out. It's hard to do that with love, but we're supposed to. And so, that's probably why I just don't tend to push on it in that kind of situation. But Peter was trying to be effective, I think. And so, the flip side, or the second thing that you brought up, was the idea of why Jesus has to stay in heaven— 
It is true that most of the apostles, most of the followers, expected that Jesus would come back right away. They didn't expect that they would die before Jesus returned. However, there was already, even this early, an understanding that the saving work in the world rests on us. Could God come down and just do it? Sure. Well, I mean, he's God. And so, yes, but that's not what was chosen, which is why, back to my point about grace, choice matters to God, because otherwise we wouldn't even be doing this. We wouldn't have the choice. If that wasn't important, God would have just done it. Jesus came down to make sure we understood the way, but it has to be us that chooses the way. And we do that for each other. We nudge each other and we help each other along and hold each other up and all of those things on the way. And Jesus will come at some point again. That's what this says. But it's not going to be in order to do this work for us. We actually are here to do this work. So first question has to do with N.T. Wright's assertion that when Jesus returns, A, Jesus will return, and B, when Jesus returns, there isn't going to be some kind of taking the saved away moment. Yeah, well, so N.T. Wright, good guy, Anglican, mostly. Um, I think I don't, I don't agree with everything that he says. I think that there is some literalism that is most present in Christianity that maybe isn't really ever the point. I, I guess the answer is I don't know, but the real answer is, does that change anything for you? Because if we, it ultimately, the, ultimately the reason we do this is not just to know information. That's good, but I hope that the reason we do this is to actually affect the way we live, affect who we are, our character, choices that we make, the people we want to become. So it's beyond just, is that information right or wrong? And so oftentimes when I'm posed with a question like, will Jesus come down from the clouds again? I don't know. And in a way, I, I don't really care because that's not actually going to change anything I do today. If it would change something you do today, then I think the real question is, why would Jesus coming down from the clouds change the way you would live today and not simply knowing you're loved and are supposed to show love? I think that if we are only motivated by the dramatic or the extreme, we should dig a little deeper because we should probably not need the shock and awe in order to actually live this way of life. Your second question was, I don't remember. Oh, heaven and hell on earth. So. That's a wonderfully philosophical question. 
is, is heaven and hell, are, are they on earth? Do we experience them regularly? I think that we experience evil, that evil is real. I don't, I don't personally think that there is a place somewhere where people burn and are in pain and suffer. I actually think that ultimately heaven is this reality with God, and if we need there to be a hell, then it's nothing. It's just the end. And I think that you're just, nothing happens, and that that's actually being with God is heaven, and being apart from God forever is ultimately hell. Okay, one more quickie. So, I know, I'll, I'll tell you. So the comment is, I have a problem thinking that Hitler will be in heaven. So, thankfully it's not up to us. And, what do I want to say? Um, you know, we're not the judges, and... No matter what someone does, truly, God forgives. Sorry. I know. I know you don't want to hear it. Um, I heard the moans. I mean, I think that we all, we all think we can draw a line at some point that says that is actually unforgivable. And for me... Something like, th there are plenty of bad things that happen in the world, and I mean, right, Hitler's always like the, the farthest out you can go, right? But how about just normal bad stuff? Like, for example, when I read about the abuse of children by priests, there is nothing, in, in my heart, there is nothing redeemable about that except we're told there is. I know. And all I can say to you is what I'm supposed to say to you, which is nothing can separate us from the love of God and Christ. Nothing. Okay, choice is different. So choice is different. As, as I noted earlier, I do think choice matters. We have to, we do have to actually repent. That's a real thing. And we saw that, we've seen that a, multi, a few times in our world, and I think nothing is probably as profound as the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions that happened in South Africa after apartheid. When you had two people sit across from each other, and a person who's family members were raped and murdered and all these stuff, forgiving the person that did it because they were able to get to a point where they saw the person and not the evil act. That, it's a real thing, and we have that capacity. We only have that capacity because that is God's truth, and we are created in God's image. Do you remember the, the day, wasn't it the day or maybe two days after the group 
was shot at Bible study in the church in South Carolina, their family members were in court forgiving the shooter? You don't get there fast. They did not go through grief and mourning and resolve and hope and all that stuff in 36 hours. That did not happen. They had spent a lifetime making sure they centered themselves on the God that we see in the person of Jesus so that when they faced what is as horrific as you can get, they were ready to respond the way that they knew they should. That's really why we do this, right? It doesn't, it's too late to try and figure this out when you are in the pit. It's not, not, it is much harder to figure this out when you're in the pit. So instead, before you get in it, or maybe after you've been in it and now you're out, do the work to center yourself in small ways so that when you seriously hit the wall or fall really deep, you've got the stuff in you to make sure you keep the perspective the way that you want to be. So that's the work we do now, that we're ready for when the bad stuff hits. All right, there's a class in here in just a few minutes, so we got to go. Thank you all very much. Have a great week.